Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the history and hysteria behind debt and debt forgiveness, while Biden is canceling student debt, and opponents of the idea are reacting in the most predictable way possible, because they misunderstand the relationship between debt and morality. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, The Intercept, The Tom Hartman Program, Unfing the Republic, The Majority Report, and Now and Then, with additional members-only clips from Unfing the Republic and Now and Then. And stay tuned at the end of the show for my explanation of how money fundamentally warps our sense of morality. President Biden's announced plans to cancel as much as $20,000 in student debt per borrower to help as many as 40 million people. The president outlined his plan during a speech at the White House Wednesday. If you make under $125,000, you get $10,000 knocked off your student debt. If you make under $125,000 a year and you received a Pell Grant, you'll get an additional $10,000 knocked off that total for a total of $20,000 relief. 95% of the borrowers can benefit from these actions. That's 43 million people. Of the 43 million, over 60% are Pell Grant recipients. That's 27 million people who will get $20,000 in debt relief. Nearly 45% can have their student debt fully canceled. That's 20 million people who can start getting on with their lives. President Biden also announced plans to extend a moratorium on all federal student loan payments through the end of this year. As Biden walked away from the podium, reporters shouted questions. Listen closely. Mr. President, is this unfair to people who paid their student loans or chose not to take out loans? Is it fair to people who, in fact, uh do not own the multi-billion dollar businesses that see why these guys get more attacked. Is that fair? What do you think? Response to Biden's student debt cancellation plan has been mixed. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren said, quote, today is a day of joy and relief. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell condemned Biden's plan as student loan socialism. Meanwhile, NAACP President Derek Johnson has said, quote, canceling just $10,000 of debt is like pouring a bucket of ice water on a forest fire, unquote. Many student debtors also say Biden's plan doesn't go far enough. This is the artist and writer Maddie Clifford of the Debt Collective. And what we're doing with the Debt Collective is really pushing and applying that pressure because a full cancellation is is also like, it's like, oh, you're asking for too much. You're asking for too much. I'm asking to be back at zero. I'm asking for a fair chance, like to actually build wealth. Like this isn't, um, they're, they're always telling us it's not enough. And, you know, two years ago, 10 K was a ridiculous thing to ask for. And now we've just won it. So what that tells us and what that shows us is that we have to keep fighting. 
Those are the words of the artist and writer Maddie Clifford speaking after President Biden unveiled his plan to cancel as much as $20,000 in student debt for millions of borrowers each. In a moment, we'll hear more from Maddie Clifford, who's featured in a short documentary from The Intercept titled Freedom Dreams, Black Women in the Student Debt Crisis. But first, we're joined by Astor Taylor, who co-directed Freedom Dreams. She's also an organizer with the Debt Collective, an organization with its roots in the Occupy Wall Street movement. She wrote the forward to the Debt Collective's book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. Astor Taylor, welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, first, respond to President Biden's plan, the executive order yesterday. Well, it's important to be very clear that the Debt Collective has always fought for full student loan abolition and free public college for all to stop the crisis of student debt at its source. So that is our position. That's what we think needs to happen. But, you know, President Biden did not campaign on, on that. He was boxed in and forced to campaign promising some debt relief. This proposal he offered yesterday doesn't even meet uh, the full threshold of his campaign promise. Nonetheless, you know, it is a stepping stone for this movement. It's, it's a milestone. So my reactions, you know, are mixed. It's bittersweet because assuming um, there, you know, there are some problems in terms of the fact that they are requiring people to fill out applications to get this relief, but assuming people uh, do that, then yes, up to 20 million people can have their balances wiped out. That's absolutely game-changing. We're seeing messages from people, you know, uh, hearing from friends and family that they're crying, that their their lives have been changed. But also ten dollars or $20,000 for millions of people doesn't touch the interest that's accrued and capitalized. It won't reduce their monthly payments, and we need to keep fighting for those folks as well, and we will. So mixed reaction, but this is incredibly significant when you think about where we began uh, as a movement not that long ago. And what do you say to those who say this is bailing out the higher education uh, industrial complex, uh, that they should be lowering their tuitions? Uh, they've got uh, together billions of dollars in endowment. Why should they be bailed out? Well, we're definitely not bailing out the higher education system right now. We're bailing out human beings who have been told for decades that the only path out of poverty is to pursue an education. The United States has substituted you know, labor policy. We should have been strengthening unions, uh, providing a jobs guarantee with telling people, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, take out student debt, you know, so that you can then have the credential you need to be employed. Um, the, the thing is, again, these policies do need to be coupled, debt cancellation plus restructuring the political economy of higher education so that public colleges are actually public again and that people can go to school and pursue higher education if they want to without the burden of debt. Uh, but we're going to have to, uh, you know, fight that fight. So there's often a false opposition in the way people frame this thing. Um, and, you know, often people who point out the student debt cancellation doesn't get to the root of the problem have no intention of fighting for the solution, again, which is free public college. But that's what we are going to do. That is the horizon that we at the Debt Collective and, and a growing uh, coalition of allies are working towards. And Mitch McConnell saying President Biden's student loan socialism is a slap in the face to every family who sacrificed to save for college, every graduate who paid their debt, and every American who chose a certain career path or volunteered to serve in our armed forces in order to avoid taking on Astra? So cynical. I mean, first off, I am one of the 
millions of people who did have to pay their debts. I paid it in full. I do not want anyone else to have to suffer just because I did. Social progress means that other people do not have to suffer through something that uh, previous generations did. And the fact is, polling shows that most people have that attitude. Most people are not as selfish and cynical as Mitch McConnell. In fact, Student debt cancellation is more popular with people who didn't go to college than people who did, probably because they understand that the costs are rising so fast they're prohibitive. So this is something people are really celebrating. And of course, let's let's not forget that you know where was this uh, where was this grave concern uh, when uh, million you know when when large corporations and millionaires were getting forgivable PPP loans, which on average were worth about $90,000. Where were they when the banks were getting bailed out, right? Where were they uh, when the government was buying billions of dollars of bad corporate debt? So it's just very cynical. And I think you can judge a policy by its enemies. The fact that people like Mitch McConnell, Betsy DeVos, um, and uh, others are so upset shows you that this is, for once, uh, a, a form of debt relief that's going to help working class and poor people. give my testimony, if I might, if I may, that I am a first-generation college graduate, and I tried to break the cycle of poverty in my family's line. Everybody has a hope and a dream for better, and debt because you decided to go and advance yourself through higher education should not happen in this country, no how, no way. that punishes poor and working class people for pursuing higher education, ensnaring individuals and entire communities in compounding interest and fees. Today, student debt is a nearly $2 trillion weight, crushing 45 million people, with women and especially black women disproportionately burdened. Student debt is a trap, and it is also a teacher. Debt teaches us that education is a commodity, that we need to choose degrees and careers based on pay, that we are alone in our financial struggles, that we don't deserve to be free. I owe over $120,000 in dollars in debt and I basically I didn't talk about it and anytime I did I automatically felt ashamed I am probably about $80,000 in debt um, and up until recently I was I think my word was shame too but while you were talking Maddie I was actually like you know it's regret I decided to go to college because like I'm a nerd I love education I love school and I thought to myself well it doesn't matter how much it costs like it's going to pay off like, I had to go to school. I'm from a family of educators. They were, like, the first generation in their family. You know, not family. So it was like, you had the opportunity, you're going to college. I was really adamant on moving towards my career goals. And so I just, like, pushed myself into this master's program without thinking, how am I going to pay for it? A lack of intergenerational wealth and other structural inequities force women, 
and black women in particular to borrow at disproportionate rates. And wage discrimination makes it that much harder to escape. For every dollar white men make, black women earn 61 cents, a lifetime loss of almost $1 million. We've been, you know, told working class people that as long as you get an education, then you will have job prospects, you'll be able to take care of your family, you'll be able to have a future. I really used to blame myself a lot and I used to feel a lot of shame. And then I started to look at the policies and I'm like, wait a second, is it personal responsibility or is it really bad policy? And I realized it's bad policy, straight up. <laughs> the inaccessibility to higher education is preventing us from being able to take care of our families. The inaccessibility to higher education is keeping us in poverty. Student loan debt was never explained to me. There was never a person that sat down and said, hey, here's how you're gonna pay for college. That means over time, we're growing further and further in debt due to these inequitable systems. I originally borrowed $203,000 and that balance has since grown to $238,000. I loved being in the classroom, but teachers just do not make enough money to survive in LA. Ended up with a master's degree and then a doctorate and then I became a principal, which is pretty much the highest position you can be at a school. And I'm still not making enough money to pay my student loan debt balance. I feel stuck between a rock and a hard place when I'm talking to my students about their plans for their post-secondary education goals. I'm teaching them to navigate the system in a way that I wasn't taught, but I'm still fearful for them. And there's days that I'm just filled with regret. That balance doesn't leave, that $238,000, it's there with me every second of every single day. You go work for these high tech companies, you can make $250,000, $300,000 and not have to worry about how you're gonna pay back this debt. I could have done that, I'm smart, I could have done that but I took on this commitment to become an educator and I'm being penalized for it. Actually, the roots of the student debt crisis started in California. Yeah, it started around the time of like the 60s and 70s when people were becoming really revolutionary. I mean, the Black Panthers were going to college, um, more women were going to college, and at the time, college was actually free in California. In 1966, Ronald Reagan, the newly elected governor of California, burnished his image by attacking the anti-war and racial justice movements taking root on university campuses. He proposed rolling back California's program of free public college and charging tuition. Taxpayers, Reagan said, should not be subsidizing intellectual curiosity. We have been and are providing a premium service, an education superior to most and equal to the best. So far, those receiving this education have not been required to share in the cost. When black and brown people started going to college in California, that's when you see public education fall away. So the burden of paying for education was placed on families. I feel like this is another way to block access to education. Our grandparents are coming off of integration. So we running up in those schools, black people, like we're gonna get our education. But now we still got this debt though. I want to talk to you about 
what's been on the minds of most of the listeners today, which has been the Biden announcement to relieve $10,000 worth of student loans, up to $20,000 you're eligible receiving uh, received Pell Grants. I wanted to get your thoughts on either your reaction to it and or your thoughts going forward of ha- what needs to happen now. Well, I, I wrote about this in uh, today's op-ed for HartmanReport.com. Um, and uh, my my take is that student student debt is an evil thing. It's, it's, it's destructive to a nation. Um, every other developed country in the world does everything they can to encourage students who are capable of getting a college education to get one. And of course, they also encourage students, you know, people who are capable of getting a trade school education to do that as well. Um, but this is about college. And the, one of the reasons that other countries do that is because it's an investment in the vitality and, and intellectual health of your nature, nation. It's a, literally an investment in the future of your nation. Um, we know this from the experience of the GI Bill. Both my father and Louise's father went to, went to college on the GI Bill. Um, my dad dropped out after two years. Her dad actually got his law degree and ended up the assistant attorney general for the state of Michigan. And what we found was that because people excuse me, uh, using, uh, because people with college educations make more money than people without, they also pay more, more in taxes. And so not only did the uh, roughly 8 million, I think it was, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers, but anyhow, not, not only did the millions of, of young men and women who uh, went to college on the GI Bill produce an explosion, a technological explosion for America in the 70s and 80s, you know, the GI Bill from the 50s and 60s, um, you know, inventing the transistor and the integrated circuit and sending men to the moon and, you know, quack, 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 the Internet and everything else. Um, but also for every one dollar that the federal government spent on the GI Bill, the federal government got back more than seven dollars in tax revenue over the 40 year period that they never would have gotten had they not made that investment. So not only is student debt an evil thing that was brought to us by the Reagan administration prior to the Reagan revolution, there was no functionally no meaningful student debt in America. When I went to college in the late sixties, I knew one guy who had a student loan and he was on a, he was working on his master's degree and, you know, for graduate school, it wasn't unusual. You'd get a loan, but, you know, basically for undergrad studies, you could, you know, I, I, I worked in a, uh, at Bob, Bob's big boys as a, as a, a dishwasher and, and uh, pumped gas at the Esso station across the street. And that's how I, you know, paid for my tuition. That was not unusual. And um, so, I, you know, I just I think it's it's a start, you know, 10,000 or really it's $20,000 going more more than half of people getting there are going to get 20,000 bucks. And, uh, you know, it's a start and, and it's a start in the right direction. You know, it points us toward the idea that education should be a right rather than a privilege in the United States. And 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 that when we provide education at no cost to people or at low cost to people then that benefits not just them and not just their families, but it benefits the entire country and it benefits us way beyond the cost. This isn't, I mean, this isn't even arguable or debatable anymore. So what's your that, response? And maybe it's exactly that, right? Maybe it's just a sort of restatement of the fundamental principle, but what is your response? Cause you know, the common counter arguments, right? The common counter arguments are, well, I paid mine or right. why should I have to pay for somebody else's? Or, and, and that's sort of one category. And the other category is, well, there's a one-time fix, right? It's a one-time giveaway. It's not even a fix for everybody. It was a fix for some people. It's a little bit of help for some other people. And it's just a, it's just a one-shot deal. What are your responses to those counterarguments? Well, you know, yeah, some people paid off their student debts. God bless them um, and, and, and good on them. But, you know, it's still an evil. I mean, you know, ju- just because uh, a society or a country has decided to do something evil to its people, 
and some of its people have survived that um, doesn't mean that we should continue to inflict that evil on other people and continue to punish people who who, who got you know swamped by it in the in the undertow. Um, it is it is wrong to have student debt in this country, and every step we can take toward minimizing or reducing that is a good step. And uh, with regard to it only being a one one off solution, you know, similarly, this is a, a positive and appropriate step toward the toward the goal of ending the need for student debt in the United States. I mean, you know, there are literally hundreds of thousands of American students who are going to college for free right now in Germany, France, Slovenia, the Czech Republic, Norway, Finland, Denmark. They all offer free free tuition to Americans. Well, to everybody, to anybody. And so, I mean, it's just crazy that we're sitting around having, the, you know, these conversations. The other the other argument that I, I got in a Twitter fight with somebody this morning about is, um, you know, basically was saying, well, you know, only only a, a, a certain portion of our population is ever going to go to college. Why should we all bear that cost? And, you know, that's the same bizarre logic that that back when. In the in the 70s and 80s, when when really the 80s and 90s, when Limbaugh used to go off on public schools and being paid for by by property taxes, and he would say, "I don't have any kids. Why do I have to pay property taxes for you know these brats to go to school? Let them privatize education." And the 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 simple fact is that even if you don't have kids, having an educated populace benefits everybody in the country. It benefits all of us in ways that are obvious and direct and in ways that are very subtle and indirect, like, you know, new inventions and new, you know, new new societal and and, and technological steps. So uh, it's just it's it's just a it's a pathetic and weak argument. I mean, the, the, you've got Republicans out there who took literally millions of dollars in loan forgiveness for PPP loans. I, I have a list of them in my article today. Um, and they're whining about, you know, working class people getting 10,000 bucks off their student loans. Give me a break. Yeah, no, they're not. It's, it's not an opposition to helping people. It's an opposition to helping people. It's an opposition to helping people. It's an opposition to bottom-up bailouts rather than top-down bailouts. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and their mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're also giving to someone in need. Bombas designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on because everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a cozy feel. Plus, they've made high-tech innovations like comfy performance styles made with sweat-wicking yarns and no-show socks designed for comfort while being specially engineered to never fall down. I've been wearing Bombas for years and enjoy them on a daily basis, but the main reason I like them is that from the very beginning, they've been focused on building a business that does good. They started selling socks with a buy one, donate one model, specifically because socks were the most requested items at homeless shelters. T-shirts and underwear are numbers two and three on that list, and so now they've expanded accordingly. So far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 75 million items of essential clothing through a network of 3,500 on-the-ground organizations serving their communities. So go to bombas.com slash best and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. In our student debt episode, we made a couple of predictions. 
toward the end of the episode, I mentioned that Biden was going to do what he was going to do. And it would be, quote, marginal and somewhat helpful. I also guessed that it would be $10,000. So speaking of the latter, I'm no psychic. This was Biden's campaign promise. But in fact, he sweetened the pot by adding an additional ten grand for all those who are Pell Grant recipients. So for anyone criticizing him for doing too little, it should be noted that for a significant portion of debt holders on the lower end of the income spectrum, this is really big news. In fact, it's going to wipe out a pretty healthy amount of total debt and unshackle millions of borrowers altogether. On the political front, the responses have been predictable. Conservatives were locked and loaded to criticize this as a bailout to the participation trophy generation, which overlooks so many crucial points about the character and cost of debt that has accrued in the past 20 years. But as the loyal opposition, they don't have to be nuanced. They just have to be angry and prey on a perverted sense of injustice that lower-income individuals and families are getting some relief, while others in the past did not. I won't patronize on fuckers with a long diatribe about the inconsistency of this stance. Sure you will. Okay, just a little. For shits and giggles, just so we can map out helpful talking points, here are some general responses. If you own a home, you get to deduct mortgage interest. If you rent, you don't. If you're a middle-income wage earner, you pay 6.2% towards Social Security. Those who earn more than $147,000 a year stop paying once they hit this number, which makes Social Security a regressive tax. Thanks, Alan Greenspan. I hate you. More than 5 million business owners had PPP loans from 2020 completely forgiven. This money was treated as below-the-line income and therefore is non-taxable. In other words, free money. So far, the average budget impact estimate of forgiveness is around $500 billion over 10 years, with some assumptions that we'll talk about in a minute. The Trump tax cuts cost the nation about double that amount and potentially more. I hate you! The increase in college tuition has doubled the rate of inflation over the past 40 years for a whopping total increase of 1,100%. So your old debt is not the fucking same as the new debt. There are senior citizens who have student debt payments deducted from their social security payments. Call back to our corporate irresponsibility episode. It's estimated that wealthy individuals and corporations are hiding $36 trillion offshore to avoid taxes. And of that amount, Americans are responsible for $10 trillion of it. So do tell me again about fairness. Go on. Ah, horseshit! And then... In the ultimate fucking haha, conservatives pushed for the liberalization of trade agreements so they could move manufacturing jobs offshore. Then they told workers to go to college to retrain for service jobs. But without trade union protections, the very same conservative employers were able to pay workers less and make them at will and more vulnerable, which led to wage stagnation among middle and lower class workers who couldn't afford the fucking student debt that they were told to take on to get that mid-level management and service fucking job. And now there are even some Republicans saying the quiet part out loud that this giveaway will reduce the incentive for poor people to enlist in the military, which should tell you exactly how fucking expendable poor people are in this country where Republicans are concerned. One of the issues that I think many Republicans have 
and frankly, you know, I think I, I wonder how much the um, the the Fed also is sort of involved in in this. I mean, I you know, with the, the Fed raising its interest rates is clearly and doing so at a time where inflation, the rate of inflation seems to have uh, abated significantly. I mean, I could see the argument like we need to see this for two or three months to really uh, buy into it. But things are starting to loosen up with supply chains. The economy is reorienting to the different uh, uh, buying habits of people coming out of COVID. But one of the things that has always driven military enlistment has been the inability of people to find jobs or to feel some type of economic pressure. And uh, at the very least, you got to hand it to this Republican, Michael Waltz from Florida. He is saying the quiet part loudly. Here nor there, I have to tell you, as a veteran, uh, the, the law that, that Biden and the excuse that Biden is using for this, a 2003 law intended to help veterans going to fight after 9-11, as a, as a veteran myself, this is a slap in the face. And the other piece that not a lot of people are talking about is that the military uses educational benefits as a key recruiting tool. The military right now is in a recruiting crisis. And if young people, 17, 18 year olds say, well, my debt's just going to get erased for free. I don't have to go crawl in the mud. I don't have to go put my life on the line for the country. It's going to take this recruiting crisis actually uh, from again, from bad to worse. So not only is it unfair, not only do 60% of Americans, not working Americans, not have college degrees, they get no benefits. Many members of my family successfully paid off their debt and worked hard and did the right thing, but it's actually going to negatively impact the recruiting for our military as well. Wait, wait, can you let her continue? Do we have any more of that? Yeah, I mean, I'm just curious. I'm not, I know she doesn't. But it would be interesting for her to like, hmm. So wait, you're saying that um, we've lost one of the tools to bribe people into putting their lives on the line and killing other people by uh, educating our population? That sounds like a bad thing. And that paired with a labor market where workers have options and wages are increasing. I mean, this is a s recipe for disaster. Not to mention, we should also say that, uh, you know, the, the idea that, you know, $10,000 um, is going to change the recruitment uh, decisions of people is absurd. Um, now, if we were to basically allow for a free college option mm -hmm. yep. uh, in each state, like we used to back, frankly, uh, in the 50s and 60s, the, I mean, to some extent, this is what they're afraid of. Absolutely. Is the idea that like, wait a second, if we do not discipline people enough, um, we're not going to get people to do the things that most people aren't interested in doing, like going and shooting other people. Yeah. It's not a coincidence that Ted Cruz says slacker baristas. Uh, because while well, Starbucks workers are unionizing, like these are the two things that they're freaked out about. And also just to note on the um, recruiting stuff, like part of the reason they're having trouble recruiting people to join the military is obviously this sort of stuff, but also 
the right wing has been telling rural communities that if you join the military, you'll become woke and trans, uh, which hasn't helped either. Um, but like, <laughs> like uh, but that's, 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 there's a, um, Larry Summers had quoted at the end of this intercept article um, saying, uh, uh, we proclaimed in June that to quell inflation, and I think he mainly means labor inflation, we need, uh, quote, uh, two years of 7.5% unemployment or five years of 6% unemployment mm-hmm. or one year of 10% unemployment. So that's just how they think about those things. Right. And I don't, I don't believe that that's actually the case. I, I, think, I think the concern is that wages have risen. I don't know what it is, 6 to 7%. Inflation as year over year, 9%. But the problem that they're having is that the rate of inflation has now stopped. I think there is actually genuine concern that the rate of inflation is going to stop in terms of prices and that it's going to settle back down because there has been a lot of gouging. And soon that relative discrepancy, and we know wages have not driven Inflation, because inflation is greater than wages in terms of in terms of the the wage inflation is less than the price inflation at this point. But what they're, I think, very worried about is this happening, the dynamic shifting, because wages are not going to go back down. I mean, at this point, wages are not going to go back down short of 10 percent unemployment. And. Prices on on commodities certainly are going to, I think, drop. Certainly in terms of like what's happening with housing starts in this country. And uh, once you get, uh, you know, manufacturing back on and there's no more massive uh, shutdowns in China, et cetera, et cetera. And I think they are terribly worried exactly about things like st- what's happening with Starbucks, what's happening with Chipotle, what's happening with Amazon. I think they're, they are afraid of an ascendance of labor power. And this is not about curbing inflation. I, I No. It is about curbing wage increases. It's about, uh, it, it, these are like the ravings of people who understand that they're losing leverage over a working population. Sean Hannity said it yesterday. Um, now my employees are going to get $10,000 of student debt relief. And he said, this is a bad thing. This is absurd. This is socialism. Did they hop on the microphone and say, uh, wait a second, boss. uh, I don't know. I mean, I made that that same joke about someone spitting in Ted Cruz's coffee about uh, Sean Hannity last week. Like, he better watch out. Some of his interns might have a thing to say. But I mean... Like that is what they're worried about. They are worried about losing leverage over a population of workers. um, And that's what student debt does. It's a disciplinary tool in order to get uh, people to do what you want and to work in the way that that you want and in industries that you want. And that includes the military. That's like I've said that that's the reason why College for All hasn't had more legs, because it's not it's a relatively cheap program in terms of like what is proposed uh, in from out out of the Bernie Sanders campaign and out of the left right now. It's one of the easiest to implement if we wanted to do it. Um, Yeah, it's it's just not that difficult. But the reason it's not being done is because then the federal government loses its leverage over millions of millions of kids who how else are they going to get people in the military? Well, I don't think it's just uh, the federal government. I mean, I think the, the concern is, uh, you know, uh, if you have all these uh, uh, people who have graduated college and they don't have to spend the rest of their life paying it off, 
then it opens up a whole wider array of options they have in terms of what they're going to do with their lives. I don't have to run to Wall Street to make money or I don't have to, uh, you know, become whatever it is. I can go and be a social worker. I can go and uh, be a dancer or I, I mean, I couldn't, but I mean, uh, I, it, it, it opens up essentially all the options that people have. And that brings us back to the caricature of the barista who did a degree, who got a degree that wasn't worth a damn. That's what Ted Cruz was saying. I I don't remember. I'm paraphrasing, but like the, they want, if you are going to take out student debt, you better contribute to capitalism in a way that they find is sufficient. Because yep. like, otherwise you're yeah. perceived as worthless. And so that's their entire caricature of like a college student who might have a humanities degree, God forbid. But that's not profitable. I do find the whole emphasis on morality and on individual bankruptcy as a moral issue really interesting because as you started out by saying debt is in this early period about morality, but at the same time, a society that is trying to expand economically needs to be able to leverage debt in order to make more capital available. So if you're operating from the premise that going into debt is a moral failing, and can land you in this purgatory that you can't get out of because you're stuck in this prison, who's going to start borrowing to be an entrepreneur and to make a business grow? So we start to get this division between the morality of individual debt. Are you a good person or a bad person? Did you waste money on, you know, the finest wig or, you know, food? You're really into the the sloops, the wig. (laughs) You're in the moment, Heather. (laughs) Or are you a good debtor who has borrowed money to make a good idea happen and it just didn't take off? In which case, that does not get defined as a moral failing. You can have a business fail in a way that you can't have a household fail. One is a moral failing and one is not. One is a, you could almost argue, an admirable risk. Certainly in the early United States, speculation in positive and negative ways is rampant, right? It's new, there's land changing hand and new new land opening up and people are speculating on anything and everything in that time period. And so in a sense, if you're engaging in that kind of practice, you might make a lot of money, you might lose a lot of money. One could argue that certainly there's something admirable to that, that you can't put that kind of a stamp on someone who spends too much personally and goes into debt. It is an interesting distinction, though, that borrowing in a household economy, if you will, is a moral decision. And borrowing in a market economy is something that's good for the country. So in the one hand, we're happy to to chunk you into prison. And on the other hand, we want to make it possible for people to borrow like that without bearing undue penalties. In the 19th century, this concept that it's a good thing to borrow for a business runs into the extraordinary expansion first of the early 19th century and then to the period after the Civil War, because, of course, the Civil War really just jumpstarts the national economy. You know, all of a sudden they're feeding the troops and they're putting horseshoes on the mules and they're 
mass producing guns and rain slickers and candy and and then after the war railroads and everything sort of gets jump started in a hurry so you first of all want to be able to free up capital you also want to be able to make sure people are willing to create these new businesses without fear so one of the things that happens after the civil war is a real change in the concept of incorporation and the idea of companies being able to incorporate and to raise money and to act as entities without having the personal individuals responsible for the debts of the company. So they start to play around with what is a public good and we get the railroads. Is that a public good or are they just there for money? And shortly after that, they're going to stop worrying so much about public good and just go for a whole new financing structure. You know, it's funny, these things seem like they shouldn't be interesting. You know, the divorce of people from having their own personal funds and reputations on the line with their companies is actually structurally really, really important. But then the other thing, of course, that happens is we get bankruptcy laws. And bankruptcy laws try to mediate, if you will, between the borrower who, you know, took risks, right? And the lender who's like, whoa, doggies, pay me back. And to make sure that you come up with a solution that is fairish to both of them. So the idea of bankruptcy legislation is to make sure there is a structured way in which a business can come apart and perhaps even have a managed period of repaying debt rather than simply being like, you suck, we're throwing you in jail. And with luck, that should both give entrepreneurs more willingness to borrow, and it should make sure that lenders aren't in real trouble in the risks that they're taking. Here's my question about, again, post-Civil War versus pre-Civil War. So I know that there's any number of financial panics in the decades before the Civil War. And sometimes a year or two, three after a panic— there would be some kind of bankruptcy law that would arise, and then when things got more stable financially, it would be repealed. So 1837, there's a panic. 1841, there's some kind of bankruptcy law. Things get settled. 1843, the law is repealed. So that's very specific. That's not changing the nature of how people see debt. That's like, ah, there's a panic. People are in debt. We have to do something. Oh, they're not in debt anymore. Okay, that's the end of that. So does the view of indebtedness as you're laughing at me. <laughs> That's like Congress in a nutshell, right? <gasps> We're panicked. We have to do something. And then, oh, well, never mind. Everything's never, good. Exactly. It's exactly. Oh, it's better now. The end. So is there a way in which post-Civil War indebtedness and the way that the state deals with it changes? I think that depends on who's holding the debts and what the political moment is. So after the 1873 panic and the and the money downturns in the 1870s, for example, people were complaining that there shouldn't be any kind of debt laws because, you know, as the Sacramento Daily Union put it, a rascally debtor could threaten his creditor with a recourse to the law, and that would enable him to walk away from the debts that he had incurred. The Sacramento Daily Union was very against the idea of people who didn't have a lot of money having access to funds. And so, for example, it complained about proposed bankruptcy laws as being fraudulent. Because remember, in this period, we have all sorts of fights over money and over what money means and over the, the fact that increasingly capital is concentrated in the American East for 
weird reasons. And the West and farmers and entrepreneurs really want access to capital and they go into fairly heavy debt. And then when you get a downturn, they freak out and say this wasn't fair because of the way the system is structured. And so on those things, people take a political side, either you want the bankruptcy legislation to protect the people who just got munched, or you want you don't want it because you're defending the creditors. But we end up getting a foundational bankruptcy law in 1898. And I think that's a really significant law because when they write that law, it's written under the McKinley presidency. William McKinley was very much a representative of business interests, as was Congress at the time. And they wanted a bankruptcy law to stop the booms and busts, to make it possible for there to be a system whereby you could borrow money and you could have a hope to get paid without having to go through these sort of ratchets back and forth between the rights of the debtors and the rights of the lenders. And when they signed the law in 1898, an act to establish a uniform system of bankruptcy, it was, in fact, supposed to be able to free up capital for entrepreneurship without taking out the personal aspect of that freeing up of debt in a way that it hadn't been up until that point. But for me, the interest of that middle period is that we have the morality argument. And then we also have the idea that you want people to take on debt because it's good for the economy, essentially. You just want to regulate it so it doesn't become a moral issue in the streets. But that is a really interesting window into the idea of people borrowing for an education. Because the idea of borrowing for an education intellectually looks as if it is an attempt to leverage debt for a public good. The same way you want entrepreneurs to say, yeah, I've got this great new winch. You want them to be able, it's my 19th century household here, you want them to be able to get that money so that they can, you know, have the best new whatever and take it on the market. And if it doesn't work, well, oopsie poopsie, you know, at least they tried. Education loans is a way of, in one way or another, whoever's providing the money is investing in people to do something that ideally will better the larger good or will better some good. It's a different way of investing in society. So it seems like those loans should be thought of in that sort of a way. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now! discussing Biden's proposal, the high price of education, and cynical arguments against debt forgiveness. The Intercept explored education as a commodity and the legacy of Reagan ending free college. Tom Hartman explained the evils of student debt and how it is counterproductive for a healthy society. Uneffing the Republic dispensed with some of the terrible arguments against debt forgiveness. The Majority Report looked at the way debt drives people into the military and makes employees easier to control, and now and then explained the history of debt and morality. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Uneffing the Republic, diving deep into the benefits of the debt forgiveness policy. 
This helps align with the dramatic increase in total indebtedness given the rising cost of higher education, as the average debt burden over the last decade has gone from 24700 per student to more than 36000 What this implies is that there's still going to be a tremendous amount of debt in the country, but that payments will return to something theoretically more aligned with prior decades with respect to income. So closer to parity with the past for those screaming about fairness. And now and then looked at the ways morality is applied differently to different debts. I mean, just to me, it doesn't make logical sense. We've got morality, we've got the business model, then we've got the concept of student loans that are based in what looks to me like the business model, but we're judging them on the morality model. And you know how I feel about things that look intellectually inconsistent. (laughs) (laughs) To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now to just wrap up, I have some thoughts on how money manipulates our perception of morality. To start, here's a quote from David Graeber's book, Debt, the First 5,000 Years. Quote, If one owes a favor or one's life to another human being, it is owed to that person specifically. But if one owes $40,000 at 12% interest, it doesn't really matter who the creditor is. Neither does either of the two parties have to think much about what the other party needs, wants, is capable of doing, as they certainly would if what was owed was a favor or respect or gratitude. One does not need to calculate the human effects. One only need calculate principal, balances, penalties, and rates of interest. If you end up having to abandon your home and wander in other provinces, if your daughter ends up in a mining camp working as a prostitute, well, that's unfortunate, but incidental to the creditor. Money is money, and a deal's a deal. From this perspective, the crucial factor is money's capacity to turn morality into a matter of impersonal arithmetic, and by doing so, to justify things that would otherwise seem outrageous or obscene, end quote. And from where I stand, the cost of higher education and the system built up around it to put entire generations of people into debt for decades and all of the ramifications that come from that absolutely qualifies as outrageous and obscene. You know, occasionally people will mention that money is the root of all evil, and if they're very unlucky, they'll be in the vicinity of someone who will pipe up and correct them that actually the quote isn't about money, but the love of money that's the real problem. And they're right about the quote, but I still beg to differ. One need not be a greedy lover and hoarder of money to allow financial concerns to preempt moral concerns by confusing one for the other. When a financial debt owed becomes a measure of morality, the game is already lost, particularly when the debt was accrued under false pretenses, which I certainly think student debt in the U.S. was, with endless promises of college being the golden ticket to high-paying jobs that would make all those student loans you take out functionally irrelevant. And this is really not that different than the liar loans banks were motivated to hand out that ultimately led to the housing and financial crash in 2008. Then, as now, 
a large portion of the population that cannot see through the rhetoric of debt standing in for morality and see the sand the whole argument is built on are blaming individuals for the collective situation we find ourselves in rather than recognizing it for the systemic problem that it is. Now, immorality frequently hides behind veneers of morality particularly structural immorality, as that's basically the definition of how an immoral system can manage to perpetuate itself. That's how you get arguments defending or downplaying slavery, saying that because the enslaved people and their offspring are better off, giant air quotes there, in the United States than they would have been in Africa, then slavery was justified, or it wasn't that bad, or at the very least, we certainly don't owe them any kind of reparations. That's just attempting badly to justify blatant immorality by cloaking it in a veneer of something vaguely moral sounding. Here's another extreme example to help make the point. There was a slave ship called the Zong, which had a tough crossing of the Atlantic with its cargo of enslaved Africans. Dozens of the slaves died and many others were sick. The captain began to worry about the profitability of the trip if the slaves kept dying, but then remembered that they were classified as cargo, not passengers or any other category of human, and were therefore insured as cargo. And he realized that they could likely make more money through insurance fraud than any other option. And by insurance fraud, I mean murdering the rest of the slaves on board and then submitting a claim saying that they had to be jettisoned because the trip was taking longer than expected, which was true, and that they were running out of water, which was not true. But if it had been true, taking that action would have been completely legal. And we know about this because of the trial that followed and all the debates came out. But I'm using this example because it's so extreme that no one today could dispute the immorality of murdering enslaved people to cash in on an insurance policy. But at the time, the only crime that was investigated was insurance fraud, not murder. And it was even mentioned by the captain's lawyer that it would be madness to consider such a charge because one cannot murder cargo. So once again, something deeply immoral was hidden behind a veneer of morality simply by reclassifying people as objects. And based on the letter of the law, the rules of society that everyone has to live by, it was legal to throw enslaved people into the ocean. If it's legal, then how could anyone argue that someone who takes that action is acting immorally? Now, I don't think that charging high tuitions or high interest rates is akin to murdering slaves— but the veneer of morality granted by laws and social norms is not actually so different. If it's legal to charge high tuition and large fees on the loans, and to tell people that going to college is the only way to have security in life, and then people sign their names agreeing to take on those loans, then how could anything about that possibly be seen as immoral, is what our culture tells us to say. So when we debate issues of morality today— we very often speak past each other because we're not talking about the same version of morality. 
Those defending the debt system of education are defending the veneer that has been draped on top of a deeply immoral system, which simplifies it down to the idea that the moral thing to do is to pay one's debts, just as one would return a favor from a friend. Sounds simple. But those of us arguing for debt cancellation aren't saying that the whole idea of debt and obligations is immoral. You should return that favor from your friend. We're saying that financial obligations, particularly those built on a system of flawed reasoning, just as all of the rationales for slavery throughout time, and there have been many, we now see clearly we're all built on flawed reasoning. Those obligations should not fall under the category of morality at all. We're not debating the logic behind paying one's legitimate debts. We're arguing that these debts were never legitimate to begin with. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmaster and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to discuss the show or the news or other shows or anything you like. Links to join are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.